In 1810, Adoniram Judson, probably the second American missionary, wrote to Anne Hasseltine's father asking for his daughter's hand in marriage with the intent of taking her on the mission field. If you're married and you ask for your spouse's hand in marriage, see how your request stacks up. If you hope to be engaged one day, take notes. Judson penned these words. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consult, Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What would compel someone to take the gospel to a land where it was unknown and unwanted? And why would such a person go knowing it could mean hardship and even death for themselves and their family? What's the trade-off here? Hardship? pain, loss of life, for what? Anne would indeed die on the mission field of Burma after living a life just as her husband described. It was one of hardship and suffering, sickness, distress, degradation, persecution. Was it worth it? Not if there are multiple means of salvation. Not if there... Um, were some other means of exposing the Burmese to Christ than proclaiming the gospel. Not if there is no hope of resurrection, and certainly not if the Savior is not worth the resounding praises of the nations. What would it take for you to do something similar? To give your life for the advance of the gospel, either in Burma or Memphis? Our text this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 28. We will consider in this text and in the text that will come after these very questions. How does the gospel advance? In why give yourself toward that end? Is God worth it? I want to pause and very quickly explain why I might not be preaching um, an Easter sermon as you might have expected, a quote-unquote Easter sermon. Certain traditions, of course, follow what is called a church calendar. This is most common among high church traditions. So um, Anglicans, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, their understanding is that the church's liturgy, the calendar included, is is sacred and the means of saving the people. So the entire year revolves around certain holidays. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Triduum, Easter, Pentecost— And then all the other weeks fall into what's called, quote-unquote, ordinary time. Um, We don't think there's anything magical about the calendar. That's not to say it's bad to preach a sermon 
explicitly on the resurrection on Easter. We just don't think the New Testament commands it or models it. From the New Testament perspective, and this is why worship was moved to Sunday from the Sabbath and why it's called the Lord's Day. Every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So it's not an annual thing. Again, not a bad thing to especially reflect on it today um, or to call today Easter. From the New Testament perspective, this celebration is an annual. It's it's weekly. We ought to be reminded every Sunday of Christ's victory over sin and death. And every Sunday, we experience a foretaste of new creation rest when we gather together. So we promise to make much of the gospel every Sunday, both in the liturgy and our preaching. Because we preach expositionally, some sermons might feel more quote-unquote Eastery, like when I get to Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26, or Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, or all of chapter 3 even. Certainly when Josh gets to Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses, we have a high confidence that the Lord will give us what we need when we're under his word, whatever the text may be because it's all about Christ. So let me pray for us, then I'll read our text and we'll begin. Father, we do indeed thank you that your son went to the cross on behalf of sinners like us and that he got up out of the grave and it changes everything. We do pray this morning that we would especially think about the good news that is and how you intend to advance that among the world. We pray that you would use even our small congregation of NBC to play a part in your program of bringing the nations to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through verse 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole, throughout the whole imperial guard, and to everyone else, that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment, and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I want to ask one question of our text this morning. How does the gospel advance? We'll see two things. First, by God's providence, and secondly, through gospel proclamation. How does the gospel advance? By God's providence and through gospel proclamation. First, the gospel advances by God's providence. That is, God sovereignly ordains all things, either by causing them or permitting them, for the advance of the gospel. You might say that God works out all things for the good of the gospel. In this section, Paul discusses how his suffering leads to the advance of the gospel. In the next section, he speculates about whether he will die or live, and then he offers theological reflection, words that we're um, likely very familiar with. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He'll go on to say, right, it's not that we believe, it's not, it's not that we've been only granted to believe, but we've been granted to suffer for Christ. 
And this suffering is both the proof that we're Christians and the means by which we're conformed to the image of the suffering Savior. So yes, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, and we'll get there. But today we consider how God providentially purposes all things, all circumstances, every detail of our life, including our suffering and heartache for his glory and for our good, specifically through the proclamation of the gospel. If you recall last week's sermon, Paul's in prison in Rome. The Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Rome to give Paul a monetary gift and to check in on them. So Paul sends Epaphroditus back with this letter um, to thank them, to update them on Paul's circumstances, and to deal with a couple of his concerns. In this letter so far, it's following more or less um, a a typical Greco-Roman, what's called friendship letter. There's a salutation, a greeting, and then there is this phrase, now I want you to know. Paul uses the same thing. It transitioned the letter to the personal update. So they're expecting to hear about Paul's circumstances, right? His prison conditions, his health, if he's received any kind of sentence. But Paul does something unexpected and shocking. He focuses on the circumstances of the gospel. I'm sure Epaphroditus will update them on Paul, but Paul wants to update them on the gospel. He wants to help them lift their gaze from Paul to Christ, from what's visible to what's invisible. Verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that is my imprisonment, my being in chains, has actually advanced the gospel. What has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Paul is a master wordsmith. The Greek word for advanced is prokope, prokope. The Greek word for hinder is proskope, proskope. The difference is one letter. They're expecting proskope. What has happened to me has hindered the gospel. Right? How can the gospel go forth when the man who preaches it is chained up and on the brink of death? But Paul says what has happened to me has prokope, that is, advanced the gospel. Phonetically, it's a difference in one letter. Theologically, it's the gap between a sorry God and a sovereign one. The difference between prosperity, heresy, and real Christian discipleship. So they're reading this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what is happening is actually prokope, advance the gospel. They're probably like, Paphroditus, I think Paul might have left off a sigma, a little S right here on this word. It says him being in prison has actually advanced the gospel. He, he meant hinder, right? No. Keep reading. What has happened to me is actually advanced the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. First, the whole imperial guard and everyone else has heard about why Paul's in prison. Right? It's because he's in Christ. That is, he's a Christian. They probably on some level have heard or are now familiar with the gospel, and they know that he is, his calling is to proclaim the gospel. He's a missionary. And second, most of the brothers in Rome have gained confidence in the Lord from Paul's own imprisonment to speak the word with even more courage. So Paul being in prison, um, 
as counterintuitive as it is or as paradoxical, it's actually led to more evangelism among the lost and edification among the saints. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. First, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention to you, always asking my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. And he wants to go to edify the saints. Verse 11, he wants, I want to see you that, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. In verse, it's, sorry, in Romans chapter 15, Paul says that he was prevented on several occasions from going to Rome, and he'd actually been wanting to go for years, okay? Paul's been wanting to go. He's been praying to God about going to Rome so that he could evangelize and edify, but God had prevented him from doing so. Well, now Paul's in Rome doing what? Evangelism and edification. Only it's under the circumstances which, left to himself, he probably never would have chosen. He's in a Roman prison, probably guard, probably actually chained to his guard. His health is deteriorating. There's a good chance he's going to be sentenced to death. But what's happening? The gospel is advancing. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he was set apart as an apostle for the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. His calling is not about comfort. It's about the glory of God in Christ among the nations. And Paul gets it. What's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. It's going forth. These might not be the circumstances that Paul would have chose, but it's precisely what God ordained. Both for Paul's good, as we'll see later, and for the good of the gospel and God's people. In particular, Paul says the gospel is advanced so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. It's become known to everyone, then why does Paul single out the imperial guard? Don't they fall under the category of everyone? The imperial guard or the praetorium, they were an elite um, guard tasked with guarding the emperor. They were like his secret service, his, his guard, his elite task force. They're nine to ten thousand stationed in Rome and they were incredibly powerful they actually crowned several different emperors and the emperor this time is Nero he's just a few years away if you're familiar with him he's just a few years away from hanging and burning Christians in Rome like human torches around the city he could of course release Paul if he wanted but Paul's imprisoned to stop the spread of the gospel to stifle Paul's ministry to discourage the saints to stop conversions, to slow down what might be perceived as a rebellion, that a small group of people who won't give in to emperor, who don't give in to emperor worship and are saying that this man died and he rose from the dead and he is Lord and King. So it's been made known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetor- praetorium, right? 
the men tasked with guarding Nero, the man trying to slow down the spread of the gospel, they've heard the good news of Jesus themselves. Turn to the end of the book, chapter 4, verses 21 through 22. Chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. This is how Paul ends his book. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings. All of them. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. It's such a small thing. All the saints greet you, but who does he single out? Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Those living and serving under Caesar are being converted. Nero thinks he's stopping the gospel, but it's made it into his very home and palace. Those guarding and enforcing his decrees have heard the good news, perhaps are considering it themselves. Those serving Nero in his own home, they bend a knee to Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul might be chained like a criminal, but the word of God is not. It can't be chained. If a decree goes forth from the throne room of heaven, it can't be stopped by a throne room in Rome. If God didn't want Paul in prison, he wouldn't be there. It's not that God is working a plan B for Paul's ministry in Rome. This is as God ordained it. The gospel has gone from prison to the praetorium God to the very household of Caesar himself. God... Has sovereignly ordained the circumstances in such a way that Paul is like um, a Trojan horse for the gospel in Rome. The whole imperial guard, everyone else, perhaps all of Rome, they've heard why Paul's in prison. He believes that some man named Jesus Christ dealt with our sins on a cross, that he rose from the dead, and he's now reigning as Lord. The gospel goes forth by God's providence. And as we see here, it's not in spite of our suffering, but it's often through our suffering. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, a severe persecution breaks out um, against the church in Jerusalem. And it says that all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Then in verse 3, it says, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. The irony here is Paul's been on both sides, right? He knows he couldn't stop the spread of the gospel by persecution, and now he's seeing it go forth through his own suffering. You see, friends, God often uses our suffering to shake the apple cart, so to speak. It wakes us up from our slumber to the grandeur of the glory of God and to the need of the world. And as the world watches us, they see what doesn't make sense. Joy in the midst of suffering. And they ought to hear from us a real solution to the problem. That Christ has defeated sin, death, and he offers us free life and life eternal. What's perhaps most shocking is Paul's perspective, right? If someone had the right to moan about their circumstances, wouldn't it be Paul? Time and time again, beaten, flogged, mocked, poor, imprisoned. Some in the church even oppose him. And now he has death on the horizon. 
And when he has the opportunity to update the Philippians, who care tremendously about him, he doesn't talk about himself. He looks with and speaks with eternal perspective. The gospel is advancing. It's on the move. Friends, how has God ordained your circumstances to advance the gospel during this season? And how have you considered your circumstances during this season? None of us, I promise you, plan for the pandemic, um, aside from maybe some, you know, crazy doomsday people. And I think for everyone I've spoken with, um, it seems to have come, quote-unquote, at the wrong time, right? It's disrupted, for some of us, our health, our work, our school, our finances, our ability to meet as a church, our weddings, the birth of our children, our daily rhythms. How do you understand God to be moving during this season through you? Can we say with Paul, I may be chained, so to speak, but the gospel is not? Will we be able to say that what has happened to us during COVID-19 actually served to advance the gospel? That it has become known to my whole family, to my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my friends, that I am in Christ. See, friends, Paul wasn't brought to Rome by accident or by plan B. God is not scrambling to make Paul's ministry work now that he's preaching from a prison and not a pulpit. God brought Paul to a Roman prison to advance the gospel. It's not what he would have chosen, but he sees a big God who is at work and can't be thwarted by an antagonistic emperor, a boss, family member, or virus. Friends, God has ordained our circumstances even now through this virus to advance the gospel. It's happening. It happened through Paul as he evangelized and as he edified the church. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Paul has modeled trust in God and perseverance in ministry, and he's preached the gospel to his, to his guards. He's ministered to saints who have visited him, no doubt, and it's led to a multiplication of ministry. Paul says that most of the brothers, they've grown in boldness, in confidence to share the gospel even more fearlessly. I want to make one note here. It says that their confidence, it's not in Paul, it's in Christ. The brothers are gaining confidence in the Lord. Their confidence, right, it's in the resurrected and enthroned Christ, not in a shackled prisoner. It's not a, oh, Paul can do this, that must mean I can do it. It's Christ is at work in Paul in the midst of what seems impossible, well, the sovereign Lord can certainly work through me. Christ is the object, the source of their confidence to preach. Paul is merely the instrument that spurs them on. They gain confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment. And this is often the way that the Lord works, that he uses other brothers and sisters to encourage us, to spur us on through their example. On, Jan- on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, who is 28 years old, Think about that. That's, that's probably the average age of our congregation. Jim Elliott was martyred along with four other missionaries trying to make contact with the very violent tribe in Ecuador. This was days after making initial contact with a tribe, which they thought went really well. They came back the next day expecting there to be a larger group there to meet them. Instead, um, 
some of the group in this tribe actually planned and plotted out to ambush and kill the missionaries. Was it a failed attempt? The missionaries actually had guns, but they'd made an agreement that they would not defend themselves even to the point of death. The guns were um, to defend themselves from animals. So the tribe sets this ambush. They plan to kill them. They succeeded. Their plans advanced. But what happened to the gospel? You would think that this was a hindrance, that he would discourage others from doing likewise. But Jim's wife, Jim's wife Elizabeth, she continued to live among and minister to a nearby tribe with her 10-month-old daughter. She took courage in her husband's example. And during that time while she was there with the one tribe, she met two women from the violent tribe. They lived with Elizabeth. They taught her the language. And then Elizabeth with Elizabeth went to live with the tribe that killed her husband. And part of the reason why they allowed Elizabeth to stay with them was that they knew the missionaries had guns, but they didn't defend themselves. And they couldn't shake this question. Why did they let themselves die? And it wasn't until they heard the good news of the gospel that they understood that God became a man to die for the very sinners who would kill him. That they might live. And that he who died conquered death itself. They saw in the missionaries the very same love of God. The laying down of oneself. And many in that tribe, including the killers, became Christians. What happened to Jim really advanced the gospel. And it led to others, his wife included, to share the word even more fearlessly. Friends, God's mission will not fail. He will acquire for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He has put us right now in the right place, time, and circumstances to be a part of that very program. Will we shrink back? Will we be consumed by fear? Will our changed plans and routines be reasons for our complaining or opportunities for us to share the gospel? Will we take advantage of the fact that everyone in our country right now is thinking about and talking about death? And that we, we worship the one who holds the keys to death itself, the one who conquered the grave, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be fearful or will we preach the gospel even more fearlessly. So how does the gospel advance? It does so by the providence of God. He, of course, sovereignly chooses us. He gives us new, new life. He opens our hearts to believe. He gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. And God also works everything together, sovereignly and perfectly, for the advance of his cause and his kingdom. And that includes the details of our life. The gospel advances how? By God's providence and through gospel preaching. Through gospel preaching. Verses 15 through 18. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What is the matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul continues to update the Philippians about himself through the prism of the gospel. He's, of course, in jail, and to make matters worse, some people are actually trying to make it harder for him to cause him more trouble 
and they're doing it through preaching. What exactly is going on here? Who are these people? What are they preaching? Why are they preaching? And is Paul commending them? Who are these people? Most likely, this is a group of Christians, and they're a subset of the brothers that are listed in verse 14. Paul explains that from his, from his imprisonment, the brothers are preaching more confidently. And now he divides this group into um, two subsets or subgroups. Okay, so Paul's in prison through his own model and example. The brothers are now preaching the word more fearlessly, and, he's, and now he talks about these two different groups. One group is preaching out of envy and rivalry, proclaiming Christ at least in part in an effort to cause Paul trouble in his imprisonment, and they're preaching from false motives, Paul says. And then the second group, they're preaching out of goodwill and love. They know Paul was appointed for defense of the gospel, and they're preaching with true motives. So they love Paul. They understand that in some sense there's more work to be done because Paul's in prison, and so they're trying to pick up the slack. They're preaching the gospel. The second group's easy to understand. Okay? Their motives are pure. They're well-intentioned. They love Paul. It's the former group that's hard to understand, preaching out of envy, rivalry, trying to cause Paul trouble, preaching from false motives. We could speculate about the situation, but we just honestly don't know much um, about the group, and we really should show restraint with the text. We shouldn't go beyond what it's telling us or what we can find out in the book. We, know, we do know that they're motivated by envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. There's a good chance they're probably preachers or pastors of churches in town, and they're jealous of Paul's ministry. So they obviously have heard about him. They probably read his letter that he wrote to Rome, you know, sometime back. Then Paul actually shows, they heard about his desire to come to Rome. He actually shows up in Rome, only he's in jail, and he still has a more fruitful ministry than them, right? The whole imperial guard has heard the gospel, or they at least understand why he's in jail. And everyone else has taken notice. And all their members, they're reading Paul's letter, and they listen to things that Paul says. And a bunch of them are memorizing chapter 8 of this letter that he wrote them. And if he got out of jail, they'd their members would probably go to his church. So it's clear that there's some kind of competitive spirit toward Paul. And they're trying to cause him some kind of emotional anguish, perhaps by flouting their freedom or disagreeing with him on certain points. It's not altogether clear. Again, we don't know. We should res restrain ourselves from speculating. What we, what we do see is that they're jealous. What's odd is what Paul says in verse 18. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Does this mean that we should rejoice in all kinds of preaching? There's a lot of type of preaching that's going on this morning that you're listening to the sermon. Joel Osteen is preaching a message that will probably make very much of man and very little of God. Kenneth Copeland, somewhere in the name of Jesus, is promising healing if you just sow that seed. Liberal churches all over our city and country are preaching, as Richard Niebuhr described, a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Do we rejoice in this crossless preaching? 
in these pictures of a morally um, unscrupulous God, of preachers who fleece the poor or who offer motivational speeches? Absolutely not. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have heard, sorry, contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. There is only one gospel, and to change that gospel is to distort it and to turn from Christ. Paul says he doesn't care if it comes from an angel or an apostle. If they're preaching a false gospel, may they be cursed. That's deadly serious. That's shocking language then in a polytheistic culture, and it's shocking language now in a pluralistic culture, right? That there's one good news, that there's one God, one Savior, one means of salvation. And to deviate from this message, it's not a matter of opinion, but of eternal life and death. Friends, there is nothing more important for us both to know and to guard and to proclaim than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners can be made right before God because of the brutal death of Christ on a cross to pay for their sins, and that Jesus has risen and is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's some kind of preaching done by some churches that we rejoice in. There's some kind of preaching done by other groups of people that we mourn, we reject, we guard against, we warn against, and we condemn. That's not what's going on here. Look back at Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Notice, Paul says that they proclaim Christ. His issue is not with the content. Verse 18's key says, Christ is proclaimed. That's why he rejoices. It applies to both groups, those preaching in love and those preaching out of envy. So the issue is not with the content of their sermon. They're both preaching the gospel. Paul can legitimately rejoice in this. The issue is their motive. So they're preaching the truth. That's what Paul can rejoice in. We're talking about same Jesus, same God, same means of salvation. Again, what's happened is Paul's imprisoned. It's led to the boldness of of most of the brothers, right? But this is two groups of people. Some of them are preaching because they love Paul, um, they want to support Paul, and then others, they're preaching the gospel more, at least in some part, out of jealousy, envy, selfish ambition. But both of them have been prodded by Paul, so to speak, and they're preaching the same content, the same gospel message. And in that fact, Paul can rejoice. It raises an interesting question, of course. Do our motives not matter? Is that not what Paul's saying, right? What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true Christ is proclaimed. I worked for a campus ministry for a couple of years, and students, they honestly would, they would often confess to us that the only reason they were sharing the gospel was to please us, right, their leaders, or to please their peers, um, or they were doing it just to... Um, hopefully gain some kind of leadership position. And this was a this was a favorite verse. We'd co- 
quote it to them and tell them, um, look, Paul doesn't, he doesn't care about motives. Just go keep sharing the gospel, you know, go get him, tiger. Is that what, is that what Paul's saying here? Of course not. On several occasions, Paul actually lists envy and rivalry in what are called vice lists. They're basically long lists of sin. And in this same book, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul uses the same words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. If motives didn't matter, then the Pharisees would have been the kings of the kingdom, but they were expelled. So what's Paul doing here? He's modeling the humility that his rivals should have exhibited. He rejoices that the gospel is preached because it's not a message about Paul. It's a message about Christ and his kingdom. And Paul's not Lord. He's merely a servant of Christ and of Christ's kingdom. This is what Paul's rivals have lost sight of. NBC, friends, do you rejoice if the gospel is proclaimed and it bears fruit, but it didn't come from you. If a member is being interviewed during a prayer meeting, is your heart moved to joy or to jealousy? When the lost are converted and you hear about it, do you wish that you were the one that led them to Christ? Do you seek to make others aware of your good deeds? Are you okay with others' success as long as it doesn't eclipse yours? Do we as a church pray for and rejoice in the ministry of other churches? We're, of course, new to Midtown, but will we rejoice when and if other churches are planted by God's grace? If the Lord adds to their number, will we praise God for it? If the Lord blesses them with a permanent space, will we be moved to thankfulness? Think about that. We're praying fervently that the Lord would use us to do a mighty work from Midtown to the ends of the earth. If God answers that prayer, but he does it through a different church, will we still be just as happy? Really, though. Friends, do we magnify our differences, or do we rejoice that other churches preach Christ? And that's not to say we don't have theologically or pastorally important distinctions. Again, Paul's not saying motives don't matter. He's not saying content doesn't matter. Um, so there are things that we disagree with other churches on. To use an obvious example, we're Baptist. That means we baptize believers and not their unbelieving children. And get this. This means that we think that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are wrong on this point. And get this. They think that we're wrong on this point. But praise God that they're seeking to faithfully apply the Scriptures as they understand them. Praise God that we can continue to partner together. And praise God most of all, more importantly than a baptismal stance, that they proclaim Christ, and in that we can rejoice. NBC, will our church be marked by competition or cooperation, by joy or by jealousy? Right now, there is a race among pharmaceutical companies to um, produce a vaccine for COVID-19. And I'm sure if you asked a spokesperson at any one of these pharmaceutical companies, they would tell you, you know, we'll just be happy when a vaccine is produced and it doesn't matter who does it. And maybe there's some of that that's true, but that's not the whole truth. You know, you want to be the company that produces the vaccine and you want to be the man or the woman that does so. You want to be on the team that does so. It'll mean riches for the company and fame for the company, right? To bring an end, so to speak, to this pandemic. Friends, it's not so 
with God's kingdom. It belongs to Christ. He's the Lord. We're the servants. This is why Paul can rejoice. The gospel is proclaimed, even even if it's being done by those who consider themselves rivals of Paul. I don't think Paul cares. They're not his rivals, right? He considers himself a servant of Christ. His aim is the gospel proclamation. Remember, Paul's not giving approval to their motives. He's not commending how they're preaching. He's happy because the gospel's going forth. And the gospel advances through preaching, through verbal proclamation. This is what we see, of course, in verse 14, right? It says the brothers are speaking the word fearlessly. The gospel is not something that can be gathered by looking at a tree or by watching good deeds. The good deeds are good. They confirm our message. They teach people about God's character, of course. It shows forth um, real change and fruit in our life. But evangelism is something that is spoken. Look at the verbs that are used in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Speak, preach, preach, proclaim, proclaimed. The gospel is good news. It's a message. It has to be preached to be heard, to be understood, to be responded to. It's not something that you can see or just pick up. Paul puts this so clearly in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Max Stiles, a longtime missionary in the Middle East, has written a book called Evangelism. Josh actually gave it away at uh, two prayer meetings ago. In this book, Mac helpfully, I think, defines evangelism as teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. He says this, Evangelism is teaching, heralding, proclaiming, preaching the gospel, that is the message from God that leads us to salvation, with the aim, the hope, the desire, the goal, to persuade, to convince, or convert. NBC, if we want to see our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our students, our family members, our loved ones converted, then we have to take seriously the means by which God saves people through the preaching of the gospel. The Imperial Guard, they didn't hear about it, um, Through osmosis, Caesar's household didn't accept the gospel through osmosis, right? Someone shared it with them. And if you're a Christian, that means someone shared the gospel with you, perhaps at risk to themselves. Jim Elliott was martyred with the intent of sharing the gospel. Elizabeth, too, took the same risk to share the gospel. The Judsons gave their lives as well, sharing the gospel. God saves through preaching from the pulpit, in the break room, over the dinner table, in your children's bedroom, Even now over Zoom, God saves through preaching of the gospel. It's through the retelling of the good news that though we've sinned and separated ourselves from God, that God in love has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. That he's made a way for us to have abundant life in eternal life. That God became a man, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that Jesus now is interceding on our behalf that he offers us life, and all we have to do is repent 
and believe in the gospel. Friends, who would God have you share the gospel with during this season? Do you believe that God has sovereignly ordained the circumstances of your life that you might proclaim the good news of Jesus? Do you believe that God saves sinners through the preaching of the gospel? To get ahead of ourselves a little bit in the next few verses, I pray that we believe, as Paul does, that the gospel leads to our salvation. And that our eager expectation and hope, more than this virus passing, that our eager expectation and hope will not be our comfort, but that Christ will be honored in our bodies, whether by life or death. It's the exaltation of Christ, the supreme worth of Jesus alone that drove Paul to preach in prison, the Judsons to preach in Burma, the Elites to preach in Ecuador. Will it drive us to preach in Memphis? Will we proclaim the good news that Jesus has died for sinners and that he got up out of the grave, that he loves us, that he offers us life? The gospel is advancing now, and it does so by God's providence and through gospel proclamation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your goodness to us, that you did send your Son to live on our behalf, to die for our sins, that he rose from the dead. We thank you that he's seated at your right hand, that he is even now interceding on our behalf. We thank you that you've ordained the circumstances of our life, both for our good and your glory. We are humbled by the fact that you would use men and women like us to advance, um, to advance the gospel, that you would use men and women like us, sinners and weak, as your tools to proclaim the good news about Jesus. We pray that we would be spurred on by one another, that we would be spurred on by you, your character, your work, that we would indeed take the gospel forth to our friends, our families, our neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would use us and NBC in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.